I'm not interested in your friends in high places, and I don't trust politicians. No, if we listen to you, we'd still be rolling drunks for a living. Carry that stink of the streets with you the rest of your life. I like the stink of the streets. It makes me feel good. I like the smell it. It opens up my lungs. Well, welcome to this week's episode of Midweek Matinee, your weekly movie podcast where we dissect, discuss, and just talk about, in general, movies. This week, we chose Once Upon a Time in America, mm-hmm. the four-hour... no we here. I just want you to know, there's no we. <laughs> Sorry. Blake I, chose this. <laughs> Chris Figueroa, <laughs> or however you say his name, <laughs> chose wow. Once Upon a Time in America. Are we going to pretend he's here? He and just here. kind of edit his edit responses <laughs> in for him. But really, you know, I thought the movie being four and a half hours long was just a, a really an egregious use of time. <laughs> I, it, re- it was really no Apex Legends. I mean, thankfully he doesn't edit this, so he'll never know that we said this. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna listen back and be like, "Those bastards." You know, his remark would be, uh, "This is the Belco experience uh, experiment of Robert De Niro movies." <laughs> <laughs> so. I uh, guess I'll introduce myself first. I'm Blake, your host for the week. With me is Brett. Hello, hello. And Joshua. Oh, what's up? <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess, as usual, the best place to start is basically what did everyone think of the movie overall? Do you think it's a good thing to actually say that Chris is not actually on this episode? <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry. I know that everyone's We talked convinced. about it slightly, so I forgot. I had planned to mention it, and it just yeah. slipped. So, also, guys, Chris is not with us this week. <laughs> I know that our impersonations of him were so spot on that we probably just confused a lot of people. Right. <laughs> but he is on vacation, so you're just going to have to deal with the three of us, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, I guess that we'll just start with Brett, since we started with you in the beginning. Um, what do you think of the movie overall? I was really worried. This is a little bit of a story build up for it. I was really tired when we were going to watch this. Uh, but, you know, I was out of time. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch it. I was a little worried that due to the length, which is four hours and 11 minutes for the, uh, I guess we should say now that this is the extended director's cut, which yes. might mean that if, you've, if you're listening to this, having only seen either the original release or the original extended release, which I think is a thing, <laughs> then you're going to have different scenes yeah i was gonna talk about the different time lengths after um we got through this but it is you're right we should have mentioned in the beginning this is the like you said the extended director's cut the third version of the movie so i was really pleasantly surprised going into it that while it it does feel like a four and a half hour movie almost (laughs) it also doesn't that surprised me. I found myself more or less engaged through the majority of the movie. There was a couple of parts that I think weren't necessarily needed in the length, uh, but you know that's one of those things where we give the director, you know, when you're when you're doing this kind of thing, which is actually interesting considering that, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think that the director was actually alive during the making of this. That's correct. And I think if I'm, if yeah, so he they talked to constituents and family members to kind of work on piecing these previously completely discarded footage back into the movies, which has a very notable, you can see when it's happening and you can hear when it's happening. But I applaud the effort to posthumously try and preserve something the way you think that somebody wanted it. It's just one of those things where 
would we, will we ever really know if it was his intention? <laughs> sure. Or if he threw away those scenes because he actually wanted them thrown away. Uh, but either right. way, I did find that I enjoyed the movie. I was worried I was going to learn something about myself, which I've watched plenty of long movies, but I just, I don't know. I've not seen a lot of the more mafia mob style movies, which is definitely where this is in, even though I think it has a little bit of a unique twist on that. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. So interested to see what you guys think too, since Blake, you chose it, but you've never seen it. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Joshua? I'll go last. Uh, yeah, you better. Uh, <laughs> okay, gosh, sorry. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. I, in general, am like... I, I like when people break the mold and they have something like big and ambitious to say. Like, I, I don't believe everything has to fit into one, you know, uniform idea of like what a movie is and what its runtime is or like, you know, an album length or whatever it is. Obviously, there are cases where it's just kind of extreme and it gets to be uh, a lot less digestible, especially if you're not like a diehard fan or like, you know, someone who lives in that era or whatever. But uh, this movie, for all intents and purposes, yeah, it's long, but I mean, holy shit, it's so incredibly made, and I mean, every aspect of it just feels so deliberate and well done, and I don't know that I've ever seen a movie that's this patient, because it's just incredibly comfortable with itself. Mm. There are just so many moments that are like, they only work because they're so slow, but they're not slow like, oh my god, get it over with, they're slow like... I don't know. It's there's something about it that evokes reality in a way that I haven't seen in almost any other movie where it's just like real life doesn't happen at like an exciting trimmed pace. Real life happens at exactly whatever pace it's happening at. And sometimes that is very very slow and deliberate, but that also leads to moments of like heightened suspense and moments that feel a little bit surreal and all of that and just it's a goddamn fantastic movie. Yeah, the uh, the the stakes definitely see themselves raised when you're given time to believe in the characters yeah uh, or i should say believe that the characters are real uh, the more time that you have to set them up the more when something happens you have an actual reaction yeah absolutely so i know we both are you both well i guess before we jump to that i'll say i really enjoyed this movie as well as brett said it was my first time watching it and it's been on my voodoo list for almost a year probably but that time length is really what has pushed me to not watching it. And me picking it for the podcast was kind of my way of saying, I'm going to watch this fucking movie finally. <laughs> so I love how I think we've all done that for the podcast so far, right? Choosing one movie at least that we've never seen before for the sole purpose of just getting to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Guilty. Like I walked away from this movie and this doesn't happen very often knowing that like this is probably like going to be in my top 10 of all time mm. and um i do want to watch it more you know more times to for sure get a feel for that before i legitimately say this is my personal top 10 worthy or whatever mm -hmm. but as brett said there were definitely some parts that maybe didn't need to be there and some of those that i felt didn't need to be there were part of the the third version's added scenes. Yeah. But she already mentioned the color grading was very off on those. So I wonder what condition they were in when they found them. Because from what I was reading online, they were kind of lost for a while. They could, didn't mm -hmm. know where some of that stuff was. So 
Yeah, and what I had read, too, about some of that lost footage was some of it wasn't even intended to be final footage, but was, like, proof of concept. Like, more or less, here's how this scene would go, and we'll do it Mm -hmm. for real another time, and they never got to that. Uh, Yeah, uh, yeah, I I thought that was really interesting. That I I mean, like, I applaud them trying to find a way to put it back in, because it's clearly a lot of work. Of course. Uh, But I do agree that... I, I won't say most of the scenes that are added in, but it does feel like at least half of the scenes that were added back in. It's hard to see in what way they really fleshed the world out in any more of a way. There is one scene in particular that was an added on one that I think does a lot to help the moment that immediately follows it, but we can get there in the long run. Mm. Well, while we're talking about it, why don't you, I mean, you can go ahead and mention it. Okay. There is the scene in which um, Noodles, Robert De Niro's character, comes out, leaving behind the gang, Max and all them, uh, and says that they can go do what they want. He has his own plans for the night, and he's going to dinner with Deborah. And there's a cut-in scene as he's leaving that's very interesting the way it was cut in, because you can see... I actually think this was maybe intended and just cut for length purposes because it transitions so smoothly into the following scene where Deborah's walking up to the car. Uh, but it's a scene where the person who's the driver is a Jewish man. Uh, and I really, again, I haven't watched a lot of uh, mafia, crime, drama, family movies, things like that. Uh, but I, it seemed like a novel take to me that this was kind of looking at the idea of the mafia and kind of the mob, but through the lens of a very different race of people where most of the time you see it, it's all about the Italian families, but this was like, Oh, this is all happening in a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, I Mm. thought that was really weird, but cool and uh, kind of unique. But there's that scene where he sets up and he's talking to the guy who's dressed very up, you know, upright, uptight, like he should be uh, for the job that you'd expect. And he mentions to him that he's dressed like one of the people who, who were throwing his kind Jewish people uh, behind bars. That's what noodle said to him. Mm. And then it's kind of set up that the, the guy mentioned something about the fact that he doesn't necessarily agree uh, with the way that Noodles is making money, because I think he says something to the lines of everyone knows who you are uh, and what you do for your money, more or less. Yeah. And Ro- Noodles' character is like, uh, says something to him like about his dressing. And w- w- anyway, he, the guy returns with the saying, the, the kind of overarching or the back end story of like, well, I'm going to college and I'm going to get my degree and I'm going to make something of myself that way, which is immediately shrugged off by noodles who says, yeah, you know, you'll, you'll do that. You'll go to college. You'll finally get your job and you'll be too old to do anything and Mm -hmm. you'll be too old to get it up, which is of course just general euphemism for you won't be able to really reap any of the benefits from it. Oh, I thought he was talking about his penis. (laughs) Clearly it's that too, but that's indicative (laughs) of more. (laughs) Sorry, man, your dicky-doo won't work. Um, (laughs) But the reason I think that that scene was actually important to add back in is I think that that scene set up the driver as a character with a moral center so that later in, you know, later in the movie, whenever Deborah and him are leaving and she goes to tell him that she's going to Hollywood and all that stuff, and then the rape scene happens, uh, I thought it was interesting that it was kind of like the, the scene goes on for a little bit, and you know the driver's aware of it, but it's like he can only hold it in so long before the fact that who he's pulling off of this girl no longer matters. And the danger that comes with that no longer matters because he believes in his moral center. So he stops the car, throws 
noodles out. And I thought that, that was really cool because I feel like if that first scene wouldn't have happened, it would have kind of been weird for suddenly the driver, just who we don't really know, to pop up, have a conscience. I mean, he could have just been the any man who would have seen that to stop it. Right. But it's good to have the context of why somebody who's employed by the Jewish mafia, essentially in this case, is kind of diametrically opposed to them. Yeah. And and yeah. willing to do something to kind of step in and do what he believes in. So I thought that scene was really well handled. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I um the driver, his for the very short amount of time he was in the movie, I felt that he was you know, it it very it showed very well how, the kind of person that he was, especially mm-hmm. in stark contrast to like literally every other character in the movie. <laughs> yeah, but since you know, talking about the length of this movie, I think is important, especially because of the, I guess, like tribulations that it went through of getting made to be this length. Mm-hmm. Mm. Leone originally had it says on Wikipedia, so there's my source. Is um, eight to ten <laughs> hours worth of footage, upset. right? <laughs> yeah, um, and he originally got it down to six hours, <laughs> and he was going to release it in two parts, about three hours each, mm-hmm. and the producers refused. So he trimmed it down to the first extended version, two hundred sixty-nine minutes. Yeah, or I'm sorry, two hundred twenty-nine minutes, the three hours and forty-nine minute movie. And um, mm-hmm. without Leone's knowledge or acceptance, they trimmed it down to 139 minutes and put it in chronological order. <laughs> so, a very oh, different no. movie. <laughs> I can't, I genuinely can't imagine watching this movie in a different time order. I think the order is very important to the way that you perceive what's going on. Yeah. One hundred percent. There's a film critic, uh, Pauline Kael, who complains. I don't think I've ever seen a worse case of mutilation regarding that one hundred thirty-nine minute cut of the movie. Ooh, yeah, I wonder how easy it is to watch with that being, you know, I mean, two hours and nineteen minutes isn't a short movie, but mm. comparative to this version, it is. I want to watch it and just see what the differences are. But, um, I have to imagine it's massive because, like Josh said, I think one of the movie's absolute strengths, which is a weird thing to say about most movies, but is the fact that it lingers so much on everything yeah, in probably the best way possible. But I, And I know that that's a big reason. Like, Can, can you imagine what would have been lingered on even more in the six-hour version? <laughs> or if <laughs> it was it, you know, how much of that was just lingering on one moment that we did see versus how much of it was completely new plot and information? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think um, it would almost be a, just a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I know I didn't obviously watch this show growing up. I think it ended before I was born maybe, but... Roger Ebert and um, Gene Siskel had a TV show where they talked about movies and such. I did not know um, that. Siskel said, in 1984, the uncut version, and remember this would be the not the one that we watched, but the the second version, was Mm -hmm. uh, the best film of 1984, and the Hmm. studio theatrical version was the worst film of 1984. (laughs) (laughs) So, if that tells you anything. (laughs) Studio meddling, man. It's it's been unescapable in the movie industry since its beginning it seems. Yeah. Well, and to their like to give the studio a little credit, a 4 hour and 11 minute movie or even, you know, a 3, three hour and 49 minute movie is going to be pretty hard to get people in the seats, I think. So, I'm not real sure 
I don't know. If it would have done, at least money-wise, a whole, whole lot better. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, that kind of brings in a discussion that I think we still have today that we kind of view, at least I know I do, as a little bit more exclusive to our time period due to the technology we have. Uh, but the idea that we want everything, we want it so fast now because of cell phones and having the answer to everything available in our pocket. Sure. I don't know. I've always felt like that's really been something that's kind of been going since, you know, kids who were 10, 11, maybe in that realm, like, you know, maybe eight to 12 or something during the 2000 wave when technology kind of really boomed up. Mm -hmm. But it does make you wonder when you look at a studio wanting to meddle with a movie down so far from what the director wanted and going so far as to do it without their permission. Yeah. Or, I mean, of course that they need it, but it's good to have the, the okay from the person who was the person behind the idea of the movie. Um, But whenever you're doing that, I think it, is this telling me something that I didn't know about the 80s that there was a similar group of people who were looking at the youth of that age and thinking to themselves they want everything now <laughs> and that's why we have to cut this movie down to two hours which by today's standards two hours is still a very long movie <laughs> sure yeah and I don't know if it had so much to do as like we want it now and we want it fast or whatever but more so I mean a four hour and 11 minute movie is or you know whatever it is i keep getting the times confused but a four-hour movie give or take yeah is Mm -hmm. tough to do like you know i have three kids and i would go see this movie in theaters you know but Mm -hmm. getting a babysitter for like five hours by the time you know you get them to the babysitter and then you go to the movies and you get back to the babysitter's house that's Mm -hmm. basically a babysitter for a day yeah so like it's it's a tough sell for a lot of people you know yeah, that that's definitely a different proposition. It's like a it, it changes from it being like a an easily fit into your outing kind of like, you know, 90 minute sort of like, oh, we'll just pop in and see this real quick and then we'll go out for ice cream after, but it's like a totally different. I mean, even just watching it at home, it was like it was like half of my day basically. It was watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh so this is a question for both of you that I think Blake inadvertently answered before we recorded. Uh but out of all three of us, how many of us actually watched the movie in one sitting? So, um, with, with the, I guess technically I didn't. There was one time I got up to get water, and it was like, I almost never do that. So it was just like a straight up, like, like the house is on fire. Like, I gotta get water, I gotta come back. Like, I hate interrupting the immersion because <laughs> it's hard to get back. Um, yeah. And then when the intermission hit, like, yeah, I got up and I took like 15 minutes to like eat real quick and like take a breath. Like if I was watching a movie in a theater that had an intermission, like just a quick breather and then come back to it. Like I didn't want to, you know, have too much time to like get out of the headspace because it's hard to kind of get back in. Sure. Blake, what you got? So I started watching it around like 1.30 maybe in the afternoon and I finished about 7.30-ish, 7. <laughs> So, like I said, I have three kids, and it's not an easy movie to watch with kids. So, like, I would pause it, you know, depending on what was going on and, like, the language and such like that. So, and then, Mm -hmm. like, they were swimming for a while, so I went out there to sit with them for, like, 30 minutes while they swam, and then dinner and shit. So, it was Mm -hmm. a long process for me to watch this movie. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But I guess my point of asking that is it kind of, if you can't even do it at home, 
I think, well, I say that. I was going to say it, it kind of proves a point, but at the same time, it doesn't. I think that part of the reason I love going to the theater so much, as opposed to watching at my house, is it's kind of like you know you're going somewhere for a dedicated purpose. Mm. So it kind of makes it easier to go, hey, I'm watching this movie. And where you're at home, and you may be like, ah, I'm a little thirsty. I'm going to get up and go drink some water and check in. Yeah. on my wife or my kids or my parents or whatever uh other people in the house maybe take a breather scroll through my phone for a second <laughs> where you could do that at pretty much any given moment at your house i think i like the focus that a movie theater puts on you not only from the fact that you're in a room with other people that do that that are there for the same thing but also the fact that you paid money for it for that experience you paid more money than you otherwise would have for that specific experience that you can mm-hmm. only see once and unlike a dvd or a stream where you can rewatch it over and over again you're really clued into the fact of like hey i've given this 12 dollars or whatever it is i need to make sure i'm focusing on this um yeah but yeah i actually watched it without getting up a single time damn at all um and it was really weird because I really debated it when the intermission hit, partially because it blew my mind. I've never seen an intermission in a movie ever. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that intermission comes in at like three hours and 10 minutes. Yeah. So it was so Just weird. The movie. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're, you're 80% there, homie, or whatever, 75% there. Just steamroll through it. Um, and, but then, like, before I could even really make the decision, the, the movie just kept going so it kind of made me wonder like was did even the theatrical release have an intermission hmm I would or is that not. something they put in later because I, I it's just an odd thing I, I i'm sure there's another movie that's done it but i've never seen one well titanic so, had one on vhs because you had to switch the tapes so there was like a you know you couldn't help it true yeah <laughs> yeah but if you watch titanic now there's not a no yeah I there, know, I there's not an intermission that they keep in from like a from a, a perspective of like take a breather yeah you know? when i, I saw and I really say that this intermission here was kind of weird because i felt like it was at a decent moment to cut away but the, but i thought okay intermission they're going to really come back to something that's drastically different and then i feel like they didn't really <laughs> they kind of yeah. just came right back into it where it was kind of already going it was just an odd choice yeah i will say if you know i wasn't watching it for the podcast i would have waited to watch like on a night that i was off and just turned it on whenever the kids go to bed and i would have been able to sit there i probably would have got up to like smoke a cigarette like halfway through but you know i wouldn't have had to it wouldn't have taken seven hours to watch it otherwise (laughs) sure (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that's understandable and i think that's Honestly, I think that's a completely real thing that's worth considering, especially as we're discussing it, like realizing like the different kind of watch experiences that we have. And that's ultimately that's more realistic for a lot of people's home scenarios anyway. Like not everybody has the luxury to just sit uninterrupted and watch a movie at home. Like a lot of people have right. other things going on. And they just got to attend to that and kind of fit the movie in where they can. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah I, very much. I'm, I'm lucky that I have a wife who is very understanding of our, <laughs> of my goals yeah lets me do it you know that's uh i'm very lucky that's not common my goal is to watch movies and talk shit about them (laughs) (laughs) i know when the irishman got like announced that it was what three hours and 30 something minutes um Mm -hmm. everyone was kind of freaking out about it and like (laughs) and it was straight to netflix so like you know we're talking about like would this have succeeded in theaters you know 
and everyone was complaining about the length of a Netflix movie. So I think that kind of tells you, at least in today's day and age, no, it wouldn't. Yeah. So I wonder, and a lot of people, you know, and as we talked about how we watched it and the differences, a lot of people were saying about The Irishman when it came out, like a couple people even made guides for like to put out there, like watch this first hour cut off after this scene and then watch you know the second hour cut off after this scene and then watch the third hour and a half or whatever and so basically to watch it like a limited series you know yeah and um unfortunately with social media that was brought with a lot of backlash of if you can't watch a movie how it's meant to be watched then you don't deserve to watch movies (laughs) or whatever the fuck they were saying (laughs) so Uh, well i definitely don't agree with that no i think that I think that the way someone watches a movie is going to speak a lot to the experience they had with it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to varying degrees, it could actually end up being a movie that you enjoy more breaking it up in three parts because maybe you were able to retain the information more, or maybe it was something where you were able to do it at a pace that felt like it was a little more controlled and you didn't get tired and grumpy or any of So, but then again, maybe you notice something uh, or pick up on something watching it the consecutive thing it's it really is hard to say but i think it it's going to paint any person who is watching it their experience a, a little bit different at least yeah i i mean yeah, absolutely like i, I think it's it, it's an interesting mix of things because I, I think I, ideally a medium like specific to movies i, I think there should be room for something to to be a little out of the norm in a way that's like you, you're making a concession, like you're meeting it halfway. Like, yes, this is a very long movie, but we're trying to do something specific. And as long as it's, uh, as Chris likes to say, respectful of your time, uh, then I, I think that's a completely reasonable thing. Like, you can accept the trade-off of you're going to get a smaller audience because not as many people want to get into that kind of, you know, deep dive commitment. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you could potentially tell a more rewarding, immersive story if you do it successfully. And, and I think, ideally, there should always be room for that sort of thing. Like, if someone wants to take a risk and do something that's outside of the box of the runtime or whatever, then we should totally, you know, welcome that and encourage it. And obviously, you know, not just be blind to if, if something aims high and sucks, then it still sucks. But. Uh, at least allowing for people to take those creative risks. And I think it's a really interesting thing now that we have limited series as such a widely available thing, especially with all these different streaming services and the seeming easier access of production and funding for making these sorts of things, where now people aren't limited to what a studio will release into theaters at 90 minutes or two hours, but now they can tell a 10-hour story and have those slower moments, but still break it up in a way where people can choose to binge it or they can choose to watch an episode at a time. Right. And that that's another thing that kind of weirds me out about all this, like with the movie links and stuff, is that some people will like freak out over a three and a half hour like Scorsese movie, but then watch like seven hours of Supernatural in a row. <laughs> and like Supernatural See, is good, so I don't mean this as like a slight towards Supernatural or anyone that watches Supernatural. <laughs> that was just like the first show that came to mind. Yeah, but it's watching habits. And I think my buddy Blaze is a good example of where he kind of will talk like he doesn't want to play a game. Uh, and this is of course just different mediums, but it's easier to get into something that has <clears throat> more of a bite sized setup that's intended to be played in very small segments, mm-hmm. uh, so that you can play or watch, uh, and then 
even if you, it, it kind of, it's like at the end of every episode, you have that moment of like, do I further commit and watch more or do I choose to take a break now? And because the, and the, because the episodes and everything were written and intended to be broken up, you don't have to have any kind of guilt that you're turning something off because you know that when you turn it on next time, it was made for that kind of viewing experience. Sure. And I think that, I don't care what other people do, but I know one of the big problems with me is like when I sat down to watch this movie, I already knew that unless I just don't like the movie and get so bored that I fall asleep, then I'm going to watch this movie all in one sitting. Because mm-hmm. I have a really bad problem with movies for some reason about feeling like I'm going to break them up. Uh, Blake, you've mentioned before that sometimes you'll watch a movie kind of broken down in the thirds or halves, and that's so foreign of an idea to me and so weird to me. No, I don't ever do that. Is it not you that? I think you're thinking of someone else. Yeah, because I, unless you know something happens, like I have done it before. Obviously, if like something came up, but well, maybe yeah, yeah maybe that's just me misremembering that you had something come up and decided to take a break and watch it. But I know it's something that's still so weird for me. I can't do it. I, if I stop watching, and I'm probably never going to finish it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like obviously with this movie, it took way longer than it should have because I had to take breaks with like with kids and stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll never turn on a movie. If like I have to go to work, I'll never watch the first hour and then finish it when I get home or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah, I could never. I can't. I can't purposefully do that. It would break my brain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm the same way. But like, I feel like while I totally disagree with watching stuff that way, like people can and should watch it however they want to. Like if they want to Absolutely. do it in shorter chunks, like go for it. But yeah. as long as that comes with the understanding that. You're not going to have the same experience, so don't expect like, oh man, I heard Schindler's List was really good. Well, how'd you watch it? I watched it in twenty minute chunks. Well, <laughs> I haven't seen yeah. Schindler's, Schindler's List yet. I haven't either, honestly. Neither have I. <laughs> I think we found well, a movie that we're eventually we are, watch. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to mention a couple more things about the shorter version that I think is really interesting. Okay. Um, so the longer version was the theatrical release in Europe, which I thought was kind of weird. So like, I guess America just thought like we can't handle it <laughs> or something. I don't know. But um, so there were major cuts to the childhood sequences, making the 1933 like where he was a like middle aged guy, I guess, like probably 30s, more prominent mm-hmm. or whatever. And then um, the entire 1968 meeting with Deborah was excised. So when he went back to see her as an older woman and he was an older man, oh wow, that wasn't in the movie at all. So when Bailey, and spoiler alert, obviously, we're a spoiler podcast, but, you know, so in the version we watched, he kind of just jumped into a garbage truck. <laughs> um, Are you led to believe? Or, yeah, or, like, from what we can tell, we're not positive, but... In the short version, he shot himself. So, like, whenever Noodles mm-hmm. walked out of the room, you just heard a gunshot, and that was it. Like, it didn't show mm-hmm. it or anything, but you were led to believe he committed suicide that way. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting, how they basically kind of changed the entire ending. Yeah. And obviously, they Which, cut two hours out of the movie. They had to do something different, but... It's very similar to The Town, um, where the extended version yeah. has a completely different ending than yeah, the, the, sure. the theatrical release. I'm always so interested in like the mentality behind that, because I, I can't help but feel like, as an outsider, of course, like not knowing their intent fully, like, isn't that just a completely different you know, story you're telling if it ends one way or the other as far as like somebody dying? That just seems like such a significant thing to have it 
be totally different, you know, yeah. from edit to edit. Yeah, it's really weird. I, I guess that in this movie, I'll give it the credit. If you look at Bailey slash Max, as we'll, as I'd prefer to call him, uh, <laughs> if we look at Max killing himself, I think both versions are just as desperate. And, and I don't really know that changing the exact way he did it, I don't think is going to have a major impact uh, as much as like something in the town where in the theatrical release he lives and in the extended version he dies. He dies. Yeah. I think that that's a, a more way, different. way different. It has a, a very different impact on the movie as a whole. Whereas I think ultimately if you look at Max killing himself, they have the same basic meaning. It's just one has got a lot more slow buildup with the truck starting and kind of confusing you and I thought it was gonna moving run forward noodles. slowly. Exactly. And it, ha- it it goes back to what we were talking about with the movie lingering so much. That was a perfect example of a scene just lingering. You have all that stuff happening. Then you have like at least 30 seconds of where you kind of see Max walk outside and like looking at noodles and noodles is kind of looking like what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. And then finally the truck starts moving. We see them kind of walk together. Suddenly Max is gone. And then it lingers more on the truck as it continues to go off into the distance. It's like, it's definitely a more impactful version of the same thing, but I think the ultimate act is the same, right? You're still killing yourself, which is essentially a show of his desperation. Such an awful way to kill yourself. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing. Like if the whole conversation in the room conveys Max's desperation and fear, like I didn't get the impression that he was done living. I just got the impression that he needed a way out of the situation. So like if he was afraid to shoot himself, I'd have a harder time believing that he'd be willing to put himself through an excruciating and potentially slow (laughs) grinded up by a corkscrew kind of death. So that was why I took it as ambiguous in a way that based on my like perception of the character, I didn't think he actually killed himself. I thought it was just like a, uh, it looks like I killed him myself, but like to an extent, I almost took that as him kind of like messing with noodles a little bit of like, I don't know, man, looks like I killed myself, but like also why would you put yourself through that if you've got a gun? <laughs> right. I thought the exact same thing, actually. I mean, like I took it to the, I, 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 the my initial thought was actually, no, nah, he didn't. He just jumped on the truck or in the truck or mm-hmm. something, but not in the back of the truck. Uh, and he went on to live. And because my thought was like, he goes to talk about how if Noodles, after he shoots him, can just go through the thing and no one will see him. It goes directly to the street. It kind of gave me the idea of like, okay, well, it never, wouldn't you be able to do that? Wouldn't you be able to get away from all of this? Yeah. And he does. And I don't know if it's the fact that Noodles goes without killing them that kind of makes him think like, you know what? I have an out. But it does make it a little bit too planned, like the truck starting, like the whole truck situation is kind of the weird part. It's like, did he call somebody? Yeah, have the truck know to be there, right? Uh, you know, why did it start when Noodles came out and then only move once Max came out? It it re- it raises a lot of questions. That kind of gives you this thought process of like, he didn't actually kill himself. Like he, th- this was kind of his last ditch escape plan that we never actually see if it works. Maybe he dies ten minutes later. Maybe he doesn't. Mm. And, and like yeah. an added thing to that, if he's a political figure, he's got pull with like workers unions and stuff. That's the only way that I would believe if I'm being super nitpicky that there's a garbage truck driver out that late anyway. So <laughs> I feel like it right. kind of lends to that theory. Yeah, for sure. Cause the unions would never let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> so one more thing, and then we can get back into the, uh, meat of the movie, I guess. But, um, I think the different versions is just one of the more fascinating parts of this movie, in my opinion. 
There was a three-hour, excluding commercials, TV adaptation of the movie. Oof. And it was non-chronological, so it was basically the one we're watching now. Still shorter by a good margin, but mm. it was a one-off showing, and there are no copies known to exist. How You can only huh. edit a movie so many times. How do you end up with <laughs> right. four different versions of a movie? I guess because of the length. Like, if it was, you know, an hour and a half movie that only you only filmed three hours worth of footage, you know, some of mm-hmm. that obviously wouldn't work because of errors or whatever then you could only edit it so many different ways but with it with you having 10 hours worth of footage in a six hour movie cut down to four cut down to three two one and a half whatever (laughs) i also find it interesting that the tv version decided to show essentially a version of that while still shorter than the extended was still longer than the theatrical by a considerable amount i think it probably goes to show that the theatrical release did not do very well <laughs> yeah. So they were not necessarily eager to repeat that. Yeah. I'd like to sit down one day and watch all of the versions in order of length just in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to get one of those things that you put in your eye that like just force your eye to stay open? <laughs> oh shit. I... Must watch. <laughs> well, you got to wait for the VR version. <laughs> yeah, that'll be where it's at. <laughs> Oh man. Um Well, look, I going into kind of general discussions about the movie. Yeah, go ahead. Uh one of the I mean, while we were talking about the end, the end kind of does a lot of stuff that I think that the beginning of the movie also had, which is just killer transitions mm-hmm. between scenes. Uh be it flashback scenes like whenever at the beginning of the movie, uh or rather once you see older noodles come back to Fat Moe's and go into the bathroom and pull out the little uh, slot in the wall so we can look through and then you see it seamlessly transition to the youth segment where you're seeing them. Um, I thought that was really cool. I love that. And then you kind of see that throughout the whole movie. There's a lot of moments uh, like going back to uh, Max's death is you see the truck, the garbage trucks lights kind of go off into the distance Mm -hmm. and then without cutting or at least one that you can tell a hidden cut, um, suddenly those red lights become headlights that are moving toward you and then they're another car and it kind of almost makes you wonder if it's like a like for a split second i was like are we flashing back to another time yeah for like until it showed noodles and then passing by i was like oh that's weird kind of a weirdly sad vague potential death followed by kind of like (laughs) the celebration um but but across the board the whole movie had a lot of really fun and like interesting transitions that i was genuinely surprised by how seamless they were because it seems like something i don't recall being in movies of that era near as often Mm -hmm. so shout out to either the director for the choice of that or whoever was doing the editing but i feel like that was something that had to have been decided from the directorial side before you even started filming you didn't know how to film to make your transitions work yeah absolutely yeah, there were so many uh, transitions like that that were just like, uh, they, they were almost misleading. And I, I felt like it was totally intentional of like uh, the way their callbacks or like uh, hints of things to come. There's just so much mm-hmm. of it that like leaves you guessing or sets up. And like, I, I don't know, it, it's it's not just a transition of like literally like we're editing from scene to scene, but like things in the scene itself and like the blocking and everything is just so integrated in a way that's like yeah i would have 
a really hard time believing that that wasn't really methodically planned. And if it is planned, I'm so impressed by like how well they pulled it off. Um, Mm -hmm. And I realized while you were talking about it, uh, the garbage truck, uh, we first see it in front of uh, those cemetery gates when Noodles is investigating the whole like mausoleum thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's an interesting callback, too. So, yeah. shit. Like, I noticed that as well once it started coming by and you're looking on the side, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I totally missed yeah. that. Yeah, there's a ton of really good scenes that just, and like you said, Josh, a lot of them have story weight. Like, there's a reason that they're choosing to cut back this way, let alone from the fact that it's incredibly visually pleasing. It's also really interesting to see how they're choosing to do this like uh, whenever we see noodles go and grab the briefcase out mm. and he's walking down the street with it and it kind of zooms in on the briefcase before zooming out and showing that it was a seamless cut going back to him in his 20s or 30s whatever it is yeah um and how that all kind of tied in with the overarching like oh you know the suitcase meant a lot to the situation and the gang so there's it, really good use of transitions not only from a a visual standpoint but from a story impactful standpoint so i want to get you guys take on like the childhood scenes um just kind of in general what did y'all think of the uh just you know all the the kids running around causing a ruckus i guess uh brett you can go ahead okay you know i was genuinely surprised i am still going through kind of in my head exactly how i feel since we just watched it yesterday sure but i honestly think it might be my favorite part of the movie for a very odd reason i think the reason i appreciate it so much is that so much time is spent on it yeah and when you look at a movie that's this length i really appreciate that uncommon for movies there is so much time spent and building them up not only as who they are from you know their kind of middle age 20s and 30s all into their older age as we see them towards the end of the movie but a lot of the movie is kind of cruxed on all the stuff that happens to them as they're young uh and i love that the the, the fact that it gets to be slow and kind of like these are just kids going out and doing kid crap and doing ridiculous it, i know it sounds weird but it reminded me of watching like the little rascals <laughs> yeah. for some reason just like edited into a really serious movie i think that a lot of the kid actors had a lot of character and heart about them i thought that they had a lot of interesting things that i, I like you know i love that they wanted to have characters that kind of had defining characteristics as to why you would know them so much so that when they finally reveal them in their 20s 30s whatever it is you kind of know who everybody is immediately yeah. mm-hmm. with no question at especially all especially max yeah no i, mean, I, I was really surprised you could have told me that was james wood as a kid and i'd be like okay sure yeah no i believed it kind of like i was like well it's not his voice so clearly well yeah but yeah it it really it sold me and i was speaking on that one of the funniest parts of when it first went to the kids thing i was like okay so the kid version of noodles because robert de niro is so such an iconic actor and look with his mole they're like just slap a mole on whoever we choose <laughs> it'll work and it was like such a dark mole too and i'm like why is his mole lightened up so much as he's gotten older <laughs> <laughs> but no, really, I genuinely love the kids section. And I don't necessarily know that it's my favorite because it's the best part of the movie, even though I do think it's really good. I think it's my favorite because it's so so seldom that movies allow you the time with characters 
in that time period to where it's kind of like the movie wants you to grow with the characters. Uh, yeah. And I mean, quite literally, from youth through their middle ages all the way through to the end of their life, uh, or at least their older age, which is something I find interesting. It seems like in a lot of, and again, I haven't seen a lot of them, but I've seen and heard things of different mob movies. It seems like a very common thing that comes around is following characters maybe not quite at the start like this movie did which i loved but at least following them to where they're old to where you age your actors up Um, yeah that seems to be and and i know that that's a big thing of the irishman and the irishman's actually a little different it's it ages them down and up (laughs) and it's all different ways this one was before cg too yeah and uh really man uh noodle really every one of them I was super impressed with how good they looked in their olden age. I mean, James yeah. Wood literally looks uh, definitely like that how now. they handled the transition. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, but Deborah's transition when she has the makeup on and she still looks just as young as she ever did. Yeah, and I kept the, throughout the whole scene. I was like, I know they're going to eventually. I like, I just feel it. I feel like they're going to eventually show her as old. But I'm like, where are they going to slide the cut in? Like, where yeah. are they going to? Sh- like, and I never saw it. But it's like she suddenly went from having smooth eyes and everything to as she wiped away, suddenly you see wrinkles. Yeah. And I was just incredibly impressed because in my mind, I'm like, anything that you do from a practical makeup standpoint for this film that where she can actually wipe, it had to have been so meticulously crafted so that she didn't accidentally wipe off the material that was giving her her wrinkles or whatever it was. Exactly. I was just very over the moon with how well handled all of the aging effects were. Like I literally kind of thought I was looking at an old De Niro with a bald spot. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely agree regarding the, the aging thing. I, I mean, yeah, that, that makeup scene was so impressive and uh, I, I guess tying into uh the whole de niro thing i I was so impressed by his movement too like there was just something (laughs) about the way he was walking where he was just like he had a little bit of a hunch and he walked more stiffly and slowly and just like the way he'd do like the the glasses and kind of like looking down his nose at something um sorry that's my dog she hates light reflections of any kind um (laughs) but he just he perfectly did honestly a lot of stuff that real life Robert De Niro does now where it's just like his like facial expressions and like the way he like kind of like squints when he reads shit. It's just like, yeah. Young De Niro as old De Niro was like really fantastically done. The only thing it was missing was the droopy sides of his mouth (laughs) to where he like always looks angry right now, like when he's old, but (laughs) besides that spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that kind of struck me, and before I get too far off on it, I do want to go back to that makeup scene real quick, because I think the makeup scene goes back to something that we talked about earlier in a very different way. While the transitions also had story impact and kind of moment impact, and like they wanted to really sell the moment that they were doing at there, I feel like the way that they chose to do that makeup scene where she's like the epitome of youth and, you know, De Niro walks in and Noodles is looking up and he's like, you know, ah, the, the, the queen who can't be aged or whatever. Uh, and he's like, that's, it's like they made it for you. And she looks so young. And I like how, I know it sounds weird and I don't really know if it was the intent, but I just, I love it because this is the first time she's seen noodles as far as we're aware since the rape. And it was really weird because the rape scene was kind of like, 
she cared for noodles and like right before all that she kind of tells him like he's the only man she's ever cared for or yeah she's ever cared for and he just disregards that and treats her like an absolute monster and then goes off to further and not that she knows this but goes off to further find a woman pay her to call herself deborah just so he can kind of live out the fantasy of how he thought that moment was going to play out um but when you kind of take all that that's kind of built underneath the surface and then you have this Deborah scene and she's looks still like youth and innocence in a weird way, even though the last time we saw her was a very crippling experience. I love the scene with Deborah because I think thematically having it to where the the longer she's in the room with noodles as she starts to work on pulling this makeup off, it's almost like she's being aged by kind of coming back to the experience of being with the person who kind of destroyed her in a very weird sense that she trusted. And I just like how the, the makeup scene transitioning to her being ageless and pure and smooth. And then suddenly wiping away as she spends more and more time and kind of looking older and older and more withered. It just thematically, it seemed like it just super sold the moment. Yeah. Very similar to how a lot of the transitions kind of played in with what their goal was to try and make that moment have a little bit more presence. Um, Absolutely. But going back to the De Niro thing, I, I, to me, it's so wild that watching that movie, of course, way, way later when I've seen a ton of movies with old De Niro, <laughs> part of what made his mannerisms so believable is that when you watch De Niro now, all of his mannerisms are just like the ones that he was pretending to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in that movie, which makes me wonder, is he acting out his mannerisms now? <laughs> or did he never just learned how not learn? to <laughs> Did he learn all the ones he wanted to use while he was filming this movie? <laughs> Maybe at the end of Robert De Niro's life, we're going to realize that it's a... Oh, fuck. What, what's Daniel Day-Lewis? It's been Daniel Day-Lewis method acting as uh, <laughs> Robert De Niro the whole time. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, so, Joshua, what did you think overall of the, um, I guess, like the child's segment of the movie? Yeah, uh, I thought it was all fantastically done. I think uh, scenes focused around children are really difficult to do well because you're depending on uh, kid actors to be believably children, but also carry the sorts of nuance that I think adults are looking for in stories. Whereas uh, generally kids can often be a little bit more fixated in moment to moment, just like playing games and stuff that is like, it, it makes sense to the kids and I think it's harder for adults to follow. Um, and, yeah. and I think kind of adding to that, there's something really, uh, there's something I don't know that I've seen in many movies, especially recent movies of uh, the places this movie is willing to go as far as exploring, like these kids are living in a fucked up time and they're having to kind of grow up really quickly. And they're doing a lot of, uh, they do a lot of mimicking adult life and mm -hmm. some of it feels very intentional. Some of it's very tragic as far as how they fall into uh, gang violence and, you know, the, this, the, the youngest, sweetest kid in the group being shot down in the street. Um, right. and, and even, like, expressions of, like, you know, their aspirations of, like, you, you know, like, uh, Noodles talking to the cop and being like, here's what you're going to do for us. Like, you work for us now. It's like, isn't this dude, like, 13? Like, damn <laughs> he's making a really convincing shakedown argument right now um and, and yeah Props like to the kid actors though absolutely they really they sold it they they did a fantastic job that was that, that was the thing I, I meant to say yeah is 
you're taking such a big gamble when you hinge any scene, let alone this much of a movie, on child actors, and all of them brought it. They gave fantastic performances. There were honestly no moments where I was like taken out immersion-wise of like, okay, I'm watching kids trying to pretend. I'm not watching like you know these characters in a movie, but like right. all of that was uh, brilliantly done. And yeah, I thought it was surprising how willing this movie was to explore like the sexual side of that too because generally that's a very difficult subject to I, I guess appropriately uh represent where you're being honest about it and not having it feel like uh exploitative for the actors or like you just feel like a total creep watching it as an adult but like there's something i, I think you know we've all been there like kids and teenagers are often more sexual than we want to think about because that's uncomfortable and it, right. but that's like especially for like around that age it's just like you know that they're it, it's a thing that exists in their lives and they're totally I, I think it's really interesting how it's explored of like it, it's just i don't know there's something really bold about it and also really it doesn't feel tasteless it feels like it's very genuine and in a way it's still like there's something really endearing about like those first awkward moments of exploring that in anyone's life i think um yeah so yeah uh all around just like shit dude this movie's really well done yeah for sure i um about like the sexuality of like the younger years of the children um i think it was handled with a lot of nuance as well that most movies don't do yeah where like you know de niro was even as a kid he was like pretty forceful with it with the um i can't remember her name that traded sweets for sex or whatever um oh peggy peggy yeah so you know even like when he was in the bathroom trying to read or whatever and she came in even from a young age he had an issue to where like it was either like pay for sex or have it like by force you know yeah and so and then with the younger kid to where like he saw the older kids having sex or like trading the sweets for sex or whatever. And then he went to do it and he was like, kind of just want this cupcake or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> and God. he just ate the cupcake. But, um, that moment see, broke my heart. Yeah. I love that moment. And in the weirdest way. And, uh, just to clarify, uh, I think he was a little younger, uh, but that was Patsy. That wasn't the youngest kid. Oh, okay. right. Yeah. 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 So he was very he was much closer in age, and if you actually kind of listen as kid. he goes, when he goes to say, he's like, "The guys told me, uh, never mind," and then he kind of just pulls back while he while he decides to wait. Yeah. Um, and I just think that, that moment was so funny because clearly they're like struggling to eat, but they're all trying to somehow. And the, the, part <laughs> of the reason I love that moment even more is that later in the movie you see that Patsy ended up, you know, Patsy as a thirty-year-old ended up with older Peggy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is interesting to me because he wasn't even the one like we never actually see him get anywhere with peggy despite seeing him try to right. but there's something that's just so it pulls off the nuance of the kid thing where it's like yeah they're a kid and they're worried about all these things because of course as a third or as a teenager you kind of have these like you're having this like sexual awakening that's very odd and uncomfortable but you don't know what to do so you give into it sometimes and other times your brain is like still half trying to be a kid yeah 
Yeah. And I love that moment because that's what it expressed to me is like, it's this kid that you could see him go from so excited to have sex with like the village <laughs> kid prostitute, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and he's so excited. And as he, as he's forced to wait, it's like the kid side of his brain's like, but that's a cupcake, dude. <laughs> like, and you're hungry. Yeah. I can eat it. Have, 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 have a little bit of the frosting. <laughs> All right, we'll go ahead and have all the frosting they got on the paper. Then you yeah. can still give it a rest, right? Well, you know, have the cherry. You know what? Fuck it. Just eat the whole goddamn cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I loved it. It's 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 one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the um, kids' scenes, the kids' segment as a whole overall was probably my favorite part of the movie. And like like you said, Joshua, the um, the actors were just extremely well, like or extremely good. They portrayed like just being in that situation very well probably some of the best that i've seen the only really one i could put above it just in the sense of like believability would be um the florida project i don't know if either of y'all have seen that yes i have not the kids in that movie i mean you literally feel like you shouldn't be watching it (laughs) like you know what i mean like they feel oh, like real. It feels kind of it feels, like you're you're looking in on someone who's unaware. Yeah, because I mean, I don't know how they handle the script. I haven't done much research, if any, on that movie. But like the kids, like mid sentence, will just okay, we're done, and then just run off and start doing something else. Like just stop talking, like like kids do so often, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, like whereas in most movies with kids, they almost talk like adults a lot of the time. Yeah, and this movie, I mean the script was very well done and they talked like they were older than they were, I guess, to an extent. But like while I was watching it, I kept thinking of the Florida project. So I recommend that for you, Brett. It's one of my favorite movies. It's extremely good, but maybe we'll get around to it on here. Cause I, I like the idea of that. I think that this movie doing such a good job of kind of capturing the kid essence. Uh, and I, I will bring it up many times on the show, but part of the reason why I think I felt like it was Little Rascals kind of just being tied into a serious movie is uh, the 1990s Little Rascals movie is so funny to me because a lot of it is the same thing of like you're kind of just putting a camera on kids. And even though it's clearly scripted in some moments, the rest of it's kind of like, well, there's a script, but all you're really seeing is kids doing their best to try and just remember while also <laughs> just being a kid. So it's like half the scenes feel like or all the scenes feel 70% just true organic, putting a camera on kids who have been giving, given just a little bit of direction. And then the rest of it was just like, that's how you make a great movie with kids is you you let them kind of take the leads, on the, the reins on it because kids are going to know how to most accurately act like a kid. Right. And yeah. I think this movie does that well too, though I also think that they did a really, I think they made the smart decision of choosing to kind of start it to where you're seeing the kids in their teenage years more so than like three or four years prior. Yeah. Uh, I think it does a lot to help the story and kind of show why their ambitions are what they are, show where they came from, but also show them at an age where they would be able to kind of look and take in the information and think to themselves, maybe we do need to be mobsters. Maybe there's a a real way of life in here. So we don't have to scrounge like we've always done. And like our parents always did, you know, yeah yeah for sure if i could really quickly uh this is something that applies to all of the age groups uh that we see the characters in um i don't know lately i've been reading a lot about like the lost generation and uh just all the things that 
that age group of people went through. And I, I think it's really fascinating to see. Um, I could be wrong on this. I, I think they are. Uh, I, I think the main cast of characters that we all uh, follow through this movie are considered lost generation, as far as like you know, they, they come of age around World War One and like through mm-hmm. prohibition and everything. And yeah. I mean, that's something that in itself is just so. There's so much going on. I mean, from the societal and technological changes of like we're building this new mechanical world to you know World War One and the influenza. And, you know, all the shit that goes on in the 20s. And then you've got, like, uh, the stock market crash and the Dust Bowl. Like, these people live through so much. And I think it's really fascinating to see. Uh, we, we see echoes of that. It's never really the focal point except for Prohibition. Uh, but we see sort of how that affects these characters' lives. Um, and there were honestly moments, especially with Noodles, where there were flashbacks where, uh, especially when he was in the opium den and the phone was ringing, um, I thought that was going to be like a war flashback, but it ended up not being, but still it was, I don't know, something about just exploring that whole era is just super fascinating to me of like the, the bedrock of what we know today as New York city and just a lot of what we now take for granted in modern society of like going out drinking and dancing and like seeing it in these early stages as these people are kind of finding their own footing, uh, as adults is just, I don't know, man. There's something this movie does in exploring that that is just super fascinating. Yeah, I I completely agree. I want to mention this real quick because you brought it up, and I don't want to forget about it because I, for some reason, didn't write in my notes. But the phone ringing throughout like that whole flashback scene in the beginning mm. was like kind of blowing my mind. I was like, "Is my speakers broken?" <laughs> yeah, because it just kept going and kept going, and then he answered the phone, and then it kept ringing, and it confused the fuck out of me for a minute there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, shit. Like it, it's it's like three different like cuts before we finally actually see where the phone is. Like yeah. that was some fucking next level. Like 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 a movie like Inception is very in your face about it being like kind of throwing off what you're expecting, but this one just like. I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> right. And from the get-go, too. Like, just almost right away. Yeah. yeah. That scene was really interesting because the way... It was actually the very first note I took, reasonably so, considering it's pretty much the start of the movie. Um, but my note exactly is, I found myself getting really annoyed with the ringing phone that continues <laughs> through Noodle's flashback. <laughs> it builds a lot of discomfort to match what you see De Niro's character facing and it exceeded a bit too well. <laughs> but then it follows with pulling the old, give you a little peek in the future before making you wait to get to the end thing as well. Uh, that was a kind of addition to the note after the movie kind of got to where, you know, as the phone rings and you kind of see these little peeks in of like, wait, what is what, what is he seeing? Like he's clearly having some kind of a trauma flashback, but you don't understand what. And that's such a that's a very common storytelling thing in recent years. Uh, definitely in video games, they've kind of picked up. Give them a little bit of the, uh, give them a really big juicy section at the end to kind of make them go wait, what the hell, and then make them get through the rest of it leading up to that point. Yeah. Um, but I did like that because I remember I thought the same thing. He answers the phone, and you're like, ah, okay, finally that ringing is done. Bring fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but when the actual phone finally gets picked up, it's an ear-piercing, like, shriek yeah. and freak-out moment. It's not even uh-huh. like, all right, I get to chill. It's like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So uh, one kind of weird thing that I thought while watching this in the beginning, when we first see old version of um, what's his name, Fat Mo, inside mm-hmm. the bar from like across the street, I was like, "There's no way in hell because this movie is way too old." But is that um, the dude from Big Fat Liar? <laughs> what's his name, uh, Giamatti or whatever? Paul yeah. Giamatti. Giamatti. <laughs> I don't know why, but from that distance that was the first thing i thought of and then the rest of the movie every time i saw him i was like it's got to be him there's no way it can't be right time is just like made up anyways so (laughs) they also did a really good job aging him up good lord yeah they did so i don't know exactly where you want to take this uh next blake yeah sorry i was if you got something to say go ahead no um one of the things, and, and really, my notes are pretty scarce. I found myself really like involved in the movie, and I kind of just stopped taking notes. Um, but one of the ones where I just had to, I, I didn't even pause it. I just kind of typed while looking at the screen to make sure I didn't miss anything. But as soon as it got done, uh, I was like, I have to put that in my notes. Uh, and it's the scene, and it's it's probably a tie if not a tie for my favorite scene in the movie following the kid eating the cupcake um but the scene after the rape of deborah uh whenever we finally reintroduce noodles into the group and everybody's being like really weird and quiet and looking at him Mm, and you kind of have this thought of like huh okay do the guys know and like are they drawing a line because you kind of have that moment where you're like, well, they didn't draw a line when he raped the lady who comes back and gets with Max, mm-hmm. which was kind of a weird moment because I was kind of like, is this rape or is she wanting it? I'm confused. Um, but coming back into all that, uh, I thought that that scene was really tense. It was slow. Everybody was kept giving him the eyes and kind of being like, oh, look who's back. And then he asked Fat Mo if there's coffee and Fat Mo kind of gives him like a weird look and like a stink eye and then hands him the coffee in a way that kind of was like suspicious to me and then as he starts kind of clinking the spoon against the glass as he's stirring in for a long time and it's getting for a long time (laughs) the camera just keeps going around and it's just building such an uncomfortable tension and then suddenly finally it just cuts to kind of revealing that the whole time the scissors were him cutting the clips of the gang's success out and everybody's like ecstatic and like the reason they were looking at him is because he wasn't there even though he still had his cut it was just a weird moment because i was like oh shit is it about to get really real here yeah Yeah. and it's going for so long and you're kind of like oh god it's gonna happen i just i know it's gonna happen (laughs) and And then it pulls the blanket out from it's like oh shit had nothing to do with that (laughs) yeah I mean, that that scene does such a good job of, like, setting up expectations and building that tension. Like, I, I think it's really interesting seeing, like, and, and it's fantastic acting from De Niro and Woods of just, like, this back and forth, like, you know, the head games kind of thing of, like, w- uh, Max taking this weirdly, like, super egotistical, like, leadership position to the point where it's, like, you know, he's got this throne and, you know, <laughs> like, uh, Noodles has given him shit about it and he's like, the fuck is that? And he's like, it's a throne. It's like, what are you doing on it? I'm like, I'm sitting on it. And it's yeah. just like, cool, so we're not going to acknowledge. And it's like, yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't pick up on what you guys were saying about like the, the newspaper clippings thing being like, Noodles is kind of shitting on their celebratory moment that they feel like he didn't earn. Whereas I was viewing it as like, he's just so checked out of like all the shit that they're doing at this point 
that it's kind of like, yeah, he's going to fuck with Max because ultimately what does his leadership mean if like none of the stuff that they're doing is what they were supposed to be about in the first place. So it was this really yeah. interesting, like, I don't know. And, and it wasn't even like, I never got the impression that the other dudes in the group were ever like afraid of Max. It was more just like they were going along with it out of like a solidarity and like brotherhood kind of thing. Like, I also didn't get the impression that they were going to cross him or anything, but like, it, it always just seemed like a they didn't want the two older brothers to fight kind of moment. Mm, yeah. So, Brett, you mentioned that um, the first rape with the the um, blonde woman. As y'all can tell by like every episode we've done so far, I am just god awful with character names in movies. I I actually don't know if her name is ever actually said. I kept trying because the movie kept showing. I was like, okay, they're going to say her name eventually. I swear, I never heard them say her name. Isn't it Carol? <laughs> I, maybe it is i don't know I, I know they said i'm almost positive they said her name um carol yeah okay there so you Joshua, go you're right somehow i kept Thank missing <laughs> but with her i think it was more of like and we don't obviously know her full backstory or anything but the way she kind of internalized what happened and like almost in i have a hard time using the word enjoy because i don't think that's the correct term but sorry i'm having a rough time trying to figure out what to say here um when she came back into the room with all the guys you know at the uh at the bar or whatever i just think that um the the different portrayals of the rapes with how Mm. the women handled it really like i think it was trying to say something there you know of the way that um maybe carol was treated previous to that as well does that make sense no for sure because definitely as you see her keep going and when she's in the room after the scene we were just talking about where uh noodle starts giving max shit because they're like you know you we said we'd never get girls you know broads wouldn't be in the middle of it he's like well who do you have right here and then he's and then every time the girl starts trying to talk max is and i mean dude james James Woods is one of my all-time favorite villains because he just pulls it off so fucking well. But he, it, it feels like you're watching, not an actor, it feels like you're watching a legitimate person losing their shit and just saying, shut the fuck up! It, it just, I, I yeah. don't know, that whole scene, like really that whole scene while they're in that room is just killer. Uh, but yeah, that I, that to me spoke a lot about how things were not only because you kind of know the situation that was explained with her husband um and then you kind of have the the situation where she's coming to max and max is like i don't even love her and she's just kind of standing there and her facial expression whether on purpose or not but it seems like it was written for her to be that way she's just taking it on the chin no problems right Mm. and yeah so it definitely does the movie continues to frame how the actions kind of go on to either mold the character or how it plays into the way the character may have already been being treated. Sure. Because one of the things about Carol, as her name is apparently, uh, but if you remember before that job, um, we know they're saying, oh, it's just uh, child stuff or whatever. They're going to do it. The one guy keeps saying, take it easy on the girl. But he's saying it in kind of a creepy way. Yeah. Like he's almost saying it like, hey, you know, take it easy on the girl, you know, like don't kill her. 
but have your fun. Right, that was weird so to it, me before the yeah. before the actual robbery. I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, right. And then though, whenever it started happening and kind of looking at her situation, I was like, why is she like punch me and slap me? I was like, is she like into this? Because that's what it seemed like. So again, I think that the movie does try to say like later as you learn more about her, it's like, oh, this is not her like she's been doing stuff anyway or at least that's to me it's not necessarily clear the time jump that happened between the bank robbery and when she's reintroduced it mm-hmm. seemed like it wasn't very long yeah it didn't seem which long to me all. would sound like if she's been sleeping with men and letting her husband peep through then she has a long history of being abused and or at least being in a very odd sexual experience to where you wouldn't necessarily know i, I it's weird to say but I could see that being the way they tried writing that situation out is like she's she wasn't clearly able to tell just how weird that like how wrong the situation was with Robert De Niro because she had such a crazy life around that due to her sexual proclivities with or without her husband I guess yeah whether they were by choice or not you know we I mean yeah we exactly. don't really know for sure obviously with De Niro it was without you know but uh a thing we definitely see from carol throughout the movie is like i don't know she's very unbroken by Mm -hmm. all manner of fucked up shit and i i think that to the point of what you guys have been saying that that can totally be like a like a numbness as a symptom of like once you've been through so much shit you kind of just cut off like all right whatever like this can't hurt me if i just don't feel anything right so that could be an aspect of you know because she's at where she's at, she's seeking just some excitement because everything else is just kind of, you know, boring her at mm. that point. But uh, well, and she's fiercely loyal, yeah. Which kind of makes me think of like I don't know if any of you guys have ever known this. It's a definitely a problem. Thankfully, it's something I haven't had to experience in a long time. But when you see people, as a kid, I would see people crazy abuse their dogs and their mm-hmm. pets, and most of the time it was dogs. And yet the dogs were so crazily loyal to them because their most basic level of thinking is like they're subservient to that person. And like, even if they get mistreated, that's just their role. It's a very odd thing, but that's like the closest analog to something I've experienced in my real life. Um, that, that kind of made me think, cause I was like, you know, she's over here so loyal to Max that she's trying to get, like it, it's, a, it's just a twisted thing. It's like she's trying to get noodles to get him put in jail so that she doesn't lose Max. So it's like she, even though she knows what comes from it, it's just her role. And she'd rather continue to go through with her role and have a use than not have a use. Sure. And not have the role because Max is not around. Uh, it's It's very interesting. Yeah. She was one of the most oddly, but kind of i won't say thoroughly because it's the way they they do it is a little uh sneakily it's like they do a lot of exploring with her as a character and i feel like you do learn a lot about her but in a very indirect way mm. yeah i agree with that yeah i do think the way that um both rapes were handled with the characters was different and um i mean it's unfortunate that either one was in the movie i didn't know when i chose the movie but um i thought it was interesting how each character you know 
reacted differently afterwards, and even De Niro reacted differently after both of them, obviously, with entire sequences happening after uh, mm-hmm. the incident with Deborah. But, um, yeah, I don't really have much else to say on that. If either one of y'all want to add, that's fine, or we can move on. Well, I should say, I, throughout the movie, kept kind of wondering, like, what is the goal of the rape scenes? Like, because, of course, they're in there, and uh, we could just throw this out there. Josh is a little more uncomfortable with that stuff. Like, it's, it's something he's mentioned it as as to why he doesn't like watching uh, certain horror movies, because he's very empathetic and feels in relation to the people on screen, regardless of it's, whether it's actually real or not. If it's portrayed in enough of a way, then he can feel that. So for me, I was watching it, and I was like, well, this is uncomfortable. Clearly, it's meant to be. But I kept kind of, as I kept going through the movie, I kept waiting. I'm like, you know, what's what's the goal of the rape scenes? And is there ever going to come anything from them? And one of the things I was a little surprised about, and I'm, I'm still trying to process if maybe something he said could be taken in a way that is meant to be that. Uh, but as they continue to show noodles in his old age, he seems like he's changed a lot as a person. Mm. who's who like realizes the things he's done and that they weren't the right things to do and he's no longer doing them and it seems like you see that out of fat mo as well yeah you know they're just they're just living life as anybody else would and it's like now they realize that that was not a bad thing all this time uh but i was really surprised that when he goes into deborah's dressing room during the makeup scene he says to her i came for two reasons and you know they, those two reasons were kind of slowly went out. I kept expecting one of the reasons. I, I kept I kept expecting him to apologize to her. Yeah. Uh, as a way to kind of concrete his growth. And uh, I mean, I'll say that clearly we saw that he grew and changed and wasn't doing those things. Um, and maybe that speaks in some ways, like you know, some things don't need to be brought up. Maybe. I, I'd almost want to watch the scene again. Like, is there a tell or something that you could kind of perceive as him not wanting to flat out say it in the same sense as to not essentially bring it up considering, cause he, he does say this is the first he, one thing he says that I think clues into that. It's the only thing that I really have to go off of is when he says like, you know, she's like, well, what do you say to somebody? He goes, you know, uh, you could say, like, you know, you're looking good. How you been? Or uh, I never wanted to see you again. I was like, okay, he's kind of like, clued in to the fact that it's a very odd thing for him to come to her considering the last interaction they had yeah i I mean to that point uh a a theme that i felt throughout this movie was nobody gets to the top without standing on someone else Mm. and i i really felt that i mean you see it especially with max and then you see people kind of standing on him to get their advantage in the end and Max becoming kind of a captive of that. But I really, I felt this the most when uh, Noodles comes back to uh, to Fat Moe's and, and Moe's like, Noodles! And he like goes to hug him and like Noodles just totally cold shoulders him. He's just like, like he hands him a letter and he just like, he moves right on to like, here's the bad news. And there are all these times where Moe is trying to just reconnect with his friend and just have like a moment together and Noodles just continually, like, he keeps that wall up and, like, you know, they talk about it a little more as uh, as their time together kind of wears on and stuff. But there's always kind of that, uh, like, even though 
Moe's supposed to be one of his best friends. He still expects like service of him. He never is like, he never treats him as an equal. He's always like, Hey, yeah, like give me some coffee. Like, aren't you going to offer me a drink? Like all these things. Um, and it's like, maybe that's just how he is as a character where he's very wrapped up in his own feelings or, Maybe that's like an insecurity thing where he feels like he has to keep that distance to not be like, you know, he doesn't want to be vulnerable or whatever it is. Like that that was kind of a a thing that I got from Noodles throughout this movie. So when it was that uh, opportune moment where it's like, yeah, if you have changed and you've realized like the wrong things that you've done, this is where you should unequivocally apologize. And it was a very it felt like the two of them falling back into their same kind of relationship with each other, uh, with noodles and Deborah, where it's just like noodles only has the capacity apparently, or the willingness to apologize so much as kind of like making a remark about it. Um, and Deborah for some reason is willing to still be kind to him, even after all of the hurt that uh, he's caused, uh, but yeah, I don't know. So it, it was really interesting just with noodles, especially just seeing like, well, he has gone through all of this growth. There is also a lot of like, he, he kind of uses people and while he's maybe more considerate than Max is, they're still kind of doing versions of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that scene, I was really surprised and you're right. That's the way I felt about it too, with Deborah kind of, whether it be purposely or in a way that she can't control because of the fact that there's history there. Um, but how she so easily slid back into the same role. Mm. And I'd say if anything, I mean, noodles kind of edged on it, but I don't think he necessarily came back into the same role so much as I don't know. It was, it was like, he was more open with her prior to all the stuff. And then with that, it was a much more solemn, like, Hey, I am only, it's without saying it, it's almost like he's saying, I'm not here to further hurt you. If I could not be here and still get the information I needed, then I would have, you know, avoided presenting you with the opportunity of potentially being reminded of the hurt of your past. Yeah. But it it is hard to say. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, but it was just, one of the things that you do see them come back to is the the idea of kind of him using biblical references on her. So she's like, if you go through that door, you know you won't be you won't be memories anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's like, you're afraid if I if I go if I open that door, I'll turn into a pillar of salt. Uh, that was an interesting kind of call back to their back and forth that they've had so many times. Yeah, but. It is. I think that one of the things I I actually enjoy about this movie is that there are a lot of scenes that I think are very up for interpretation in various ways, depending on the experience and life of the viewer. Mm -hmm. Because I do feel like if you kind of look, we all had slightly different takes on like some of the biggest scenes. Sure. And I think this is just another one of those where, I guess that was, a, but I guess going back to why, what I was saying is that the, the whole crux of that for me kept being like, what was the purpose of those scenes? Like there had to be a purpose. And I'm still convinced that there is an overarching for sure directorial point that he would have necessarily wanted it to be. Um, Cause it just seems too 
on purpose. Like, you know, you don't do something like that. You don't show it the way you showed it without having like an actual reason to do it. Um, I feel like so, but I, I guess maybe the directorial reason would kind of be to kind of let everyone know that De Niro's a piece of shit. Sit, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but sit on that moment whenever it all comes back together. Definitely between him and Deborah, uh, where I actually thought they did a very interesting but pretty good job of kind of building the relationship between them, and even like the literally the back and forth between them as children, where mm-hmm. you know she lets him see her dancing despite knowing he's there. And then leaves the door unlocked for him to come through because she saw him and knew that he was going to come in while everybody else was going away to do their prayers. Mm-hmm. And you see how quickly that changed whenever he started being who he was aspiring to be separate from her when he goes and gets beat up by all of Bugsy's guys. And then she locks the door and hides uh, and just won't let him in. It's like you see they have a back and forth yeah. and that she's always wanting him to be more than he's aiming to be. And it's, it's very weird, but yeah, I just, I, I I like how the movie is not so closed ended that you can't kind of have a just open discussion about the way you think maybe it was trying to take it and that they all have ways of seeming like they're kind of valid. You know, you can be like, Oh yeah, see how that might be what it is. But also here's this, thought process and maybe has to do with this yeah i mean this feels like a an unfairly like short assessment of it but like almost like every scene and all the dialogue it just has so much depth to it and so much nuance to it to where like you can have a whole conversation about a scene and you can analyze individual lines and subtle things that they do in the scene and it's just like the whole movie is this and it's so yeah i I don't know i'm just astounded that you can have four hours and 11 minutes of meaningful interesting stuff where like you can pick anything and you can you can read into it and it feels fleshed out and it feels intentional it feels like there's thought and there's multiple layers of things that you can like glean from it and it's just like Shit, man. Well, I think that that's like the human element, right? The the movie feels human because yeah. that's kind of the thing it is. It's like we all perceive moments that happen to us and those around us differently anyway. But when a movie can make you do that to where you each perceive a slightly different take on any one thing, but they all feel valid and like depth and like you can go through, it, that's something that actually happens in life. And I feel like it's it's not necessarily rare, but it's definitely something I wish I saw more of in movies where when you got through with them, you kind of felt like those people felt alive. Like that felt like I was peering into 100% another world that had nothing that detracted from it. And I think that's kind of where the difference of like these style of movies and something like uh, The Irishman. And then you have the conversation with the whole uh, Scorsese saying the Marvel thing about how they're kind of a theme ride. Well, I mean, if you look at the differences of what they're trying to do, one is trying to remain so so grounded and making you feel like you're it's alive in a way that you understand and that you've seen and it's familiar, where the other is grounded enough but also doing it with fanatical and crazy stuff i feel like the the real big shoe in for what's great about these types of movies is that they can feel so real because of the fact that every aspect of them you can feel like you can go out and experience yourself or at least you it feels like a real human interaction uh 
yeah. without anything that's too crazy. Like, oh, well, he's talking to a blue-haired snake. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think it comes back to uh, a thing we were talking about yesterday of like, I, I don't know, the total vast differences in filmmaking style and intent where it's like uh, a friend of Michael Bay once said that like, uh, Michael Bay isn't competing with you seeing the movie in the next theater. He's competing with you going to Six Flags. And that is worlds away from what, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese is trying to do, or, you know, I, I mean, it's just so, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting to see the total variance in that. And I, I think it comes down to, again, like this movie is slow and deliberate and it, it wasn't until like 2014 that, more or less the director's intended vision was finally able to be presented to people. And, you know, it's really interesting seeing. Yeah. I I mean, you have to imagine within the director's lifetime, he was at least happy enough as much as any creator can be with what existed and maybe had things that he would ideally change. But still that's like, I I don't know. That's so interesting. Like what we make concessions for and, and what is, uh, I don't know how much of a director's like vision is able to be conveyed and people accept it without like producers trying to meddle and make it more acceptable or, you know, Warner bros having a trailer house recut your entire film, not pointing fingers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. So sorry, I'm just flabbergasted by this movie. <laughs> no, you're good. I, um, I know we've talked about, you know, them cutting it a whole lot, but you brought it up and I forgot to mention earlier, there's a really good James Woods quote about the theatrical release from back in 84. Hmm. And it is, I hope they burned the fucking negatives three weeks before the film is released. They have the assistant editor of fucking police Academy, chop it up to fucking ribbons. I mean, do you think I was suicidal? The film got slaughtered by the critics as well as it should have. It was fucking dead in the water. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Damn. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) well when you watch that movie and the performance he gave i get it like you know when you see it's like so you're taking this performance and all of this work and i started thinking about that you know they filmed for a year that's what i'm saying you know how crazy but i mean that's that's so much longer than most movies film for yeah that is insanity and i kept thinking that when i was watching i was like you know to have a movie that is four hours and 11 minutes or whatever. At one point in time, it was longer. Yeah, six like there's hours. All, the first there's cut. always more. And I didn't know that, but that's even more interesting. So you go, okay, so first cut, six hours. So what do they film? 10 hours? And then you kind of keep going. It's like, man, to make a movie this long, you have to know exactly what the your plan is, exactly what your goal is and for a story. And you have to be willing to make no compromises because that's the story you wrote. Mm-hmm. The, the story you wrote cannot be told at least as i'm seeing it now i think that the three hours and 49 minutes version may be the prime version realistically um i I am curious to watch it again a while down the line and see how much the added context really does help i think the only scene that i 100 percent for sure would keep would be the scene with the driver i was talking about i think it's the only one that makes a notable change to the movie in a way that i just can't imagine the movie without but even then to make a three hour and 49 minute movie as your final product you have to know going into it what your end goal is and you have to be willing to make no compromises and to the director's you know, credit, he didn't, but that doesn't mean that the studio won't get in and have their own way. 
but this is one of those great moments of kind of like justice for people doing things they shouldn't be doing is like you make a decision that as a group of you know just ties and you know not really creatives at all mm-hmm. you make a decision that goes against and hurts the artistic and creative vision of what you were paying someone to make and now you reap the consequences of that choice i i kind of love that <laughs> yeah i mean i could i could have a whole separate podcast about how i feel about uh corporate influence on creativity but uh <laughs> yeah that that's definitely it all comes back to that idea of like why shouldn't a four-hour, 11-minute movie be given every bit as much a chance as, you know, uh, a 60-minute VHS, you know, action special? Like, right. they can both be equally valid and both appeal to different audiences. And I, I think there's something that we often... I, I don't know. Like, it, it's easy to write stuff off as pretentious, but I think... I, I think pretension is often, a, like, a, a dismissive excuse for whether you're the viewer and that's a thing that makes you uncomfortable because it's like, wow, they really just doubled down on this thing where it's like, sure, it's super serious or it's super thematic or it's super heavy or whatever it is, but like, let some shit be that, you know? Like, th- that doesn't mean that, you know, you can have a, a long-ass movie that is really serious and still have all the other stuff too. Like, one isn't taking away from the other. So that's like, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of... To Brett's point, I'm glad that there is such a swift and decisive correction of what's obviously just the wrong decision being made for the wrong reasons. And, you know, I think of all the other instances where, you know, we aren't so lucky and we get, you know, a version of something that's maybe 75% of what it could have been had, you know, the original creative vision just been able to exist unfucked with. Hashtag Um, release the Snyder cut. (laughs) uh, Hashtag release the Ayer cut. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it really is. It, the thing is, is that you don't have somebody, you don't have a, a group of producers and big wigs at a company painstakingly get somebody to go through and put together a director's extended cut after the original director has passed away, way, you know, 20 years after the original release, unless you are still reeling from just how bad of a decision you actually made. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Of course, we weren't alive in 84, but I almost have to imagine that this is one of the absolute craziest flops for them to 20 years later still be like, you know what? We could probably make this movie even longer, closer to his original six hours, (laughs) and we can have an even better movie, and people will respect us for it, and we understand the mistake we made, (laughs) even though the irony is is that the same company probably four months ago uh, before this just told another person, eh, your three-hour movie's a bit too long, buddy. What do you think <laughs> yeah. about an hour 45? Yeah. Well, there's like and I eight hours say, of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. <laughs> I, I should say, to to the credit of sometimes, I think the benefit of having a group of, uh, of, of the company kind of being like, is this really the shortest you can get it? Like, you know, if it was approached in a different way, I think that there is some value to having an outside group coming into your artistic process and pushing you to make sure that you know that to do the best that you can cut the fat, make the best thing that you can by having them go six hours. Like, you know, six hours is a very long movie. Are you positive that at six hours, there is nothing you can cut to make this movie 
a better overall experience. Like you notice that extra two hours really make the movie into something that just couldn't be done without that two hours. Mm -hmm. Or can you tell a similar story and have it impact people and have a bigger audience want to come and sit and watch it at three hours and 49 minutes rather than six hours. And there's some benefit to that. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why as a creative myself, when I'm doing music, I like to send it to people who are not me because someone else can come through with the one thing. And that's why you have to ask for honest, open criticism of like, you know, somebody could say, well, Hey, you know, it's good as it is, or it's not so great as it is. Do you really think this is the best you can do? Even if it's good, you know, it's good to have somebody be like, is this really the best you think it can be? And kind of force you to break where you've been with it and go, you know what? Maybe there is something I can do to pull this down to be a really tight, engrossing, (laughs) great experience, be it music, games, television, movies, you know. Sure. I don't know. If I sent someone like a song and they just replied, is this really the best you can do? (laughs) I'd be a little upset. (laughs) Yeah. Not not in that way. It's a course of way. It's of course more like, hey, here's what I do and don't like no, about it. But it just can you laugh. push yourself harder? You know, can you push yourself to trim it down or add on to it? Either way, to make sure that you're getting the best possible version that you can pull together. Yeah, it would be funny though if he had a six hour cut and showed it. Someone they're like, is that really the best you can do? <laughs> The exact words of the studio executive. (laughs) Listen here, Leone. It's the good, bad, and the ugly, so, you know. (laughs) Damn. Um, And I think that's that's the biggest difference between genuine, like, uh, genuinely intended creative criticism, which is constructive, versus not that financial bottom line criticism can't sometimes lead to greatness, because there are countless times where pressure is a thing that leads someone to uh it it gives them the urgency and that urgency uh sparks something that elevates whatever the thing they're they're working on is um but i I think there are just so many instances where the the business side of the criticism isn't necessarily well-meaning it's not like with respect or reverence for the work it's just like hey we're trying to push a product here like fit the mold or take a hike um and I, I don't know, ultimately I feel like, well, that's that's like a broad gestures example kind of thing. But like, I, I don't know, I, I think there ideally still could be room for like, if you want to partner with a studio and release a theatrical cut, that's totally fine. And when the home release happens, you can have a director's cut. Like, wh- why can't both exist? I think there should be room to navigate all of that stuff where obviously you can't have like a filmmaker... Uh, you know, approach a studio and be like, hey, I'm going to make you a blockbuster. Give me all this money. And then they make you a fucking eight-hour think piece. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I think there yeah. should totally be room for like, you know, why shouldn't there be a four-hour version of a movie? And like, sure, the two-hour version goes into theaters and, you know, you got to hedge your bets that hopefully that version does well enough for there to be enough funding to even justify another edit or a home release that anyone cares about. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's the thing is that these extra edits aren't free. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> What's that? That's kind of the more funny part about the studio meddling, as I'll say. It's it's meddling to do it without even talking to the director, you know. <laughs> uh, but I love that they spent extra money to further crip it down because they thought it was going to be more successful. 
just to have it do worse <laughs> than it probably would have done. That's just yeah. yeah. It, it's poetic justice in a very weird way. Well, that's like <laughs> with the Snyder cut. It's going to be like twenty million dollars, from what I read earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's like twenty or thirty, something like that. And uh, the cool thing about it is, it kind of speaks to exactly what Josh is saying. You know, the theatrical version of the Justice League was like two hours, maybe. Uh, I didn't watch it. Um, we've gone through that story personally, but um, <laughs> what I really like about the Snyder cut is like the cut that he last had that he was working on is somewhere in the ballpark of about four hours. Uh, and I love that they are looking at it from like, you know, how, we're going to release it at pretty much this cut and we're going to come back and finish all the effects. We may cut a little bit more or maybe add something back in mm-hmm. just depending. Uh, cause he's even talked to, to all the actors to say like, you know, if we need you to come back in for like a quick voiceover or something, uh, and they're all on board, but I love that it's doing the same thing. It's coming back later, uh, despite very different circumstances and saying like, Hey, you know, what's the problem with a four hour version of another, of a two hour movie existing and yeah. that four hour version being incredibly different because it's actually what the original person wanted. That's a great thing to see. And I like that they're open to it in the case of like, well, either we'll release it as a full movie or we'll release it as like four individual episodes of hour long, like a, like a limited series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's cool to come back to an idea and let someone's original idea breathe the way it should have. And yeah. I think the one big takeaway I have from this movie is I shouldn't, I realize I shouldn't have had any trepidation coming into a four hour and 11 minute movie. I think that the time for the most part was incredibly deserved and in, incredibly well spent. Uh, and that is amazing. And, Really, it almost makes me want to see more movies choose to edge on the longer side. Mm-hmm. But there's a place for everything. I don't think I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any 90 minute movies or 120 <laughs> yeah, minute sure. movies, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think that there are some clear examples that could benefit from coming back and are even in the future that can benefit from being like, you know what if we really gave it time to shine and not cut this idea down? It's a lot of what I think about like the new Dune movie. I hope that it gets to be something that breathes and has a chance to really survive instead of being the fifth comeback, either new or reboot sci-fi movie that just throws out and is like, ah, we made a 87 minute sci-fi epic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially for that audience, because like people who want heady sci-fi shit are down to fucking like to stew in that. So give them a lot, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Clearly, as you can see, I've already pre-ordered all the movies that have done it well. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I've already pre-ordered the four hour cut of the countdown. So excited (laughs) for that. (laughs) Nice, bro. Just more apps. <laughs> <laughs> did it did it come with a downloadable app? Yeah, you can only get it on the downloadable app. I almost have to wa- <laughs> I wonder, surely when that movie came out, there was a coinciding app that you could download on your phone as part of the marketing campaign. I right? don't know if there's got to be. I want to say there was, but the movie came out last year, and I don't remember. Like, I think I would have heard that, you know, like being on Twitter and seeing, because I saw the movie a lot. Like on Twitter, but I never saw anything about apps. But why wouldn't they have done that? I don't understand that. Uh, okay, apparently it did release. It is still on, at least from what I could tell, it is still on Google Play, so on Android. What? Apple yeah. removed it. Wow. Yeah. It looks like the one on it. Google Play is <laughs> fake. <laughs> so it's not made by the movie company or anything? 
It's uh, not. STX is what it said. Oh, interesting. Because I'm seeing a couple different versions of it that are like the same icon even, but they're all like all the comments say like, eh, it's a pretty good recreation, but it's not the original one. Huh. So back to the movie at hand um, <laughs> and the editing. I just, I wish I could have been like a fly in the wall, in the room, like on the wall or whatever of um, the editing room when they handed the guy the edited Police Academy, a six hour movie and said, all right, we need this less than two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> also, also, I'm totally going to start using a fly in the room <laughs> because yeah. I'll make that even better. <laughs> I wish I could just be a fly in the room. <laughs> But, like, imagine being told to cut four hours out of a movie and also, like, make it chronological. Well, I guess it wasn't four hours, right? It was a three-hour and, three and 49-minute movie. So a, pr- a pretty much four-hour movie that, he, that was told to cut in half. Yeah, because they'd already cut it once. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So still, though, like, cut this movie in half and also completely jumble it. <laughs> <laughs> Also, whenever we cut away from this room, just find a uh, a free gunshot sound and just slap it in <laughs> over a still frame of the house. Uh, there we go, buddy. You got it. You've you've done it using that police <laughs> police academy money wisely. <laughs> so I guess we can kind of move into like our favorite scenes from the movie. If you want to mention some Joshua, or even I guess if you have any that you hated. Uh, I hated the whole movie. Okay. No, um, Brett, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one that honestly, like, there's something about the way a lot of the early shots in the city were uh, shot. <laughs> Good sentence framing. Um, something about like a lot of the really slow pans into the city with like the really yellow tone, and it had like a little bit of like a foggy look to it, where it's like. It, it almost had that sort of like old school photography, like washed out sort of haze to it. Um, the, the, the dance in the, uh, like the, the basement underneath the, the restaurant or the bar was, uh, one of them where it's just like, it, it's got like this like yellow beige-ish kind of like tint to it. And it's got like a little bit of like this haziness, which is like a, you know, dusty rooms kind of have that kind of vibe to it. So it was like a good like grounding sort of thing, but it also was just like, really effective but i loved the music like they're i don't know if it's oboes or clarinets or whatever it is but like just the woodwinds being super relaxed and just like something about a lot of the scenes like that that are very like even if nothing particular is happening in them it's just like i mean shout out to the score by the way i was consistently like just fucking floored by the score um but it was incredible yeah uh yeah a, a lot of my favorite scenes are just more like little contemplative moments like that or uh shit it's like the beginning of the movie where noodles is coming down the elevator and we we see this elevator come down for what feels like an eternity as a as the gunman who has uh mo tied up is like you know he's like he's like waiting right there and he's like oh shit (laughs) dude i'm gonna get this guy like he's screwed as soon as he comes down and we're just like waiting with suspense and then finally like the gunman gets shot from behind it's like yeah "Ah, dude it's a very gory (laughs) movie too not gory probably the wrong word but very bloody movie I'm surprised, yeah. Kind of tapping in on uh, Josh's remarks about the, excuse me, about the score. Two things I kind of noticed that were specifically related to the score is that the movie has a good few extended scenes that really add to the runtime of seeing characters talking with no dialogue and it's purely music over and said. Um, 
which I thought was interesting when I first was coming in before the first one had actually popped up when they're in the, uh, you know, in the kind of graveyard and he's looking at the building where everybody's supposed to be where you see that one cut in prior to that. I was kind of like, are these the ones they cut in? Like maybe they had camera, uh, but they didn't have any kind of audio backup. Uh, and then later as they kept doing it in the movie, it's like, Oh no, these are, these are intended. Mm -hmm. But they were a really interesting choice to kind of pull in. Um, The other thing I liked is going back to kind of the woodwind discussion. uh, I like that uh, after they introduce that, uh, I want to say it's cockeye, right? Who plays the little woodwind instrument. Uh, Yeah, the pan flute. Yeah, the pan flute throughout it. I love that every time that he goes into a room where all the guys are, you hear that even if it's not cockeye actually playing it, it's kind of like, a oh, well, you just know it's like, part of the gang it's like you're you're coming into the gang you're always going to hear this type of instrumentation as he's going to meet up with everybody in the gang and then you'll see you'll hear it quit whenever it stops being a group thing and just goes down to being like him and max uh, yeah. so it's almost like they use it as like a uh i guess i wouldn't say a theme but kind of like a a, a reprisal that they come back to every time that they want to kind of like you know give you a feeling of like oh this is the gang this is everybody together loving each other being part of the same area it was just an interesting choice uh that i really thought was cool because of the fact that it kind of tied into something that somebody actually did in the movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. i thought that was a cool use absolutely i didn't mean to steal your thunder though did you have any other uh, other scenes that you liked is it just all the movie really all the music related ones rather yeah a lot of it was that i mean it's hard for me to even pick because so much of what made this movie stand out for me is just like the way everything looks and like feels like the lighting and just like the the film grain feel of it it's just you know it's hard to even pick favorites because this whole movie is just fucking i don't know i like it it's gorgeous i mean every shot a lot of my favorite scenes are literally because of the cinematography so <laughs> i get it <laughs> the um did you have any more brett before i go on uh, yeah, the only one I didn't really mention was just <laughs> that we haven't already talked about in regards to like the kids and stuff. Um, all the all the wacky antics with the kids that was somehow also grounded in a very like realistic like oh there's consequences to that. Yeah, uh, I, I loved all of those. I mean, like I said, the kids section as a whole, I just I, I it was so entertaining, but also gripping, but also telling and like built towards something uh but seeing some of those moments that kind of tie back to what you'd expect from the characters as you saw them as kids uh, i love whenever they go in uh to change the tags out on the babies in the uh maternity ward (laughs) and cockeye is the watch out and he goes in there and the first thing he does is takes his mask off grabs one of the milk bottles yeah (laughs) he doesn't even he didn't even screw the lid he just bites the rubber nipple and just (laughs) pulls it off and he's like yeah there we go and he just chucks it down um i don't know why it was just it was funny to me and it made me think of the kids sections but then the weird part about that was it made me realize how little in the kids section of the movie cockeye was really explored it's almost like you get to see him more explored as an adult yeah for sure. which is interesting because you see him fleshed out as an adult doing things that are rather childlike yeah so both uh him and patsy uh have kind of that going on uh which is funny because they're both the two characters that didn't get that still survive that didn't get a lot of setup you know most of the setup as a kid is you seeing max and noodles 
and then how that plays into Deborah. You don't even really see much of Fat Mo. Uh, you get more from Fat Mo as the movie kind of continues to go on as well. Um, it's just it's interesting, you know. I, I thought that was a really funny scene because it just also worked as a the whole scene was funny. Even them going in and having the doctor's things on, uh, <laughs> it was good comedic relief already. But then that scene was kind of just like the the cherry on top. Yeah, yeah. The entire baby switching scene and the cop afterwards was some of my favorite parts. <laughs> I just love them just switching all the tags and babies and moving them around and all that shit. It just it made me laugh even more that when they're having the conversation after they get off the phone with the cop and he's like, uh, "Where's the switch list?" and Patsy's like, "Uh, I think I shed it with the doctor's coat." And he's yeah. like, "But," I, and then I love that it follows up with, "No, but I distinctly remember." Uh, the, the boys were odd. No, no, the, the boys were even and the girls was odd. I was like, he, he doesn't even know. No, he doesn't he's know just, shit. <laughs> he's, he's just saying shit. Uh, the, um, I really loved when they were kids too and they were out with the um, the moonshine runners and they got the balloons and they were like watching yeah. the boxes float up and stuff. That whole scene was just, first it was gorgeous, but it was just really entertaining too. Well, it kind of had like a lot of wonderment to it. Um, yeah, with all the fog. But yeah, but also this is something I actually meant to talk about. I forgot to put it in my notes. Uh, so that scene, we see Max kind of purposely dump them into the water and then swim away while Noodles is facing away, so he can kind of prank him. Yeah, mm-hmm. I kept expecting. Definitely, with this being the director's extended cut, I kept expecting whenever De Niro's character just drives the car into the lake that and then they come up and you don't see him but you see the guys i was like okay they're gonna bring that back it's gonna be like noodles was hiding and he's gonna kind of be like ha ha here i am you remember Mm. when you did that to me you fucking asshole but then they didn't and then it suddenly just cuts to them all by buddying around you don't you don't see where noodles was the whole time nobody is pissed at all that he just fucking ramped a car into the water (laughs) that is one of the only scenes that i was like what the fuck was the point of that yeah i was confused by that as well which i forgot i didn't write that part down either but yeah i don't really have any other scenes to mention offhand does anybody have anything else to really talk about before we move on nope i think i'm all good Okay, the last kind of thing that I have that, at least in my notes, that I want to talk about is the ending, the like very last scene when he's smiling at the camera, De Niro, Noodles. I was wondering about that because it didn't really make any sense to me. And so in some of my research, I saw some theories, which I always enjoy looking up after, especially movies that are, you know, kind of harder to take in or whatever. But um, the fact that a lot of people think... None of it actually happened? Well, everything after the... um like after the age he is in the opium den yeah everything because the opium den is after max gets killed uh as far as he thinks right so i thought the same thing is that all you're what you're seeing is him having kind of a an opium induced dream of like living out to where like he gets to see deborah again and kind of do whatever with that and see max again who he thinks is dead but it's like his little daydream he gets to kind of see max again and imagine that he was okay the whole time yeah before having to metaphorically kill him anyway because he is actually dead right right yeah i just thought that was kind of interesting i didn't really have a whole lot to add to it i just didn't know if either of y'all had thought of that or anything like that 
Yeah, that was actually one of my first thoughts because I thought the same thing. I was like, what a weird fucking thing to come back to. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought it was weird when they opened the movie with that. So I was like, okay, they're opening and closing the movie with that, which makes me think that what we're seeing leading up to this moment is all true. And then everything after. But, or at least his version of true, you know, as we're seeing it kind of through his memory in a weird way. Right. Uh, and then everything after that is kind of just like a drug-induced dream to let him have closure like because technically that gives him closure with mo gives him closure by going and getting to see the graves of the other guys and Mm. then getting to see max one more time and deborah one more time yeah well i um don't really have much to add else to the movie um i know what chris's choice is if y'all want to move on to that or if you had any closing statements well, I guess before uh, we go into that, we need to go ahead and rate the movie, right? We do need to rate the movie. You're right. We always forget. <laughs> I never forget. I feel like I'm more often the one who pulls us back to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joshua. What? Um, out of 5,000 stars, how many do you give this movie? Uh, shit. Well, I was going to give it 69 stars, but... It's uh, pretty nice. low. Are you sure? I, I guess I'll give it 5,000 stars. Okay. Um, on Letterboxd, I, I gave it a 5 out of 5. There, there are moments yeah. that I think uh, drag a little bit, uh, but overall, like, I, I, I tend to subscribe to the idea of one. I, I don't read too much into like, like numbered ratings anyway. Like, stuff can just exist separate of that. Sure. But um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't think a thing has to be utterly perfect with no criticisms of it whatsoever to warrant like a five or a ten out of ten. Like, it's oh yeah, this is a fucking masterclass. Like. I, I learned so much just as a movie watcher and I'm going to be paying so much more attention to particular things because of what I've seen in this movie. So like, goddamn. Yeah, for sure. I don't, um, I don't subscribe to the idea that anything is perfect really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So none of my five star movies like on Letterboxd or whatever is like perfect. So I pretty much fall in line with you. But cool. uh, Brett, what about you? Out of five million stars, how many do you give it? <laughs> I also give it five million out of five million uh, <laughs> for the exact same reason, actually, as Josh. I, you know, we do our weekly games podcast, Triangle Squared, uh, me and my buddy Saul. But one of the things I often talk about in there is that some of my absolute favorite games and some of my absolute favorite movies and some of my absolute favorite books and stories and everything have flaws. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's when the flaws are either adding a sense of charm that otherwise wouldn't be there are somehow the movie manages to essentially make you forget about the flaws and that you only really think about them when you're trying to have a discussion about the movie. You know, when you just think about the movie, it took me a long time to even remember the scene with the car crash in the water because while it's a weird weird scene, ultimately it clearly didn't weigh on me that hard because I didn't even remember it until you brought up the scene that I thought it was trying to reference. Uh, so... Uh, again, yeah, the movies and content in general can be given a perfect score without having to be perfect altogether. And yeah. I definitely agree with there. Yeah. So I also give it five stars out of five. I think Woo! this might be our first perfect movie. Not perfect movie, uh, yeah. but like the all of us gave it five stars. Yeah, that's because Chris wasn't around to give it, uh, <laughs> to give it a four and well, a half. Well, if he's not here, I, then it doesn't fucking count. <laughs> so this is a perfect uh, yeah. movie. <laughs> I actually really hope that one day Chris decides to watch this completely free of the obligatory nature of the podcast where we 
are we know we owe it to the podcast to watch it because that's what we've agreed to do right i would love for him to just sit and watch it uh and i'd love to hear what he thought because i have a hard time seeing this movie being objectively bad mm-hmm. by anyone's standard but that's the great thing about conversation and opinions is that sometimes your eyes can be open to interesting stuff. Uh, so it's almost like the, the podcast is a catalyst for me to have deeper conversations about movie and content, even when the podcast isn't necessarily uh, needed. You know, I, I just yeah. want to talk to Chris about it and see what he thinks. Yeah. Well, my favorite part of opinions is that Chris isn't here to give his. So. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I um I hope he does watch it one day. I think that the the reason he went on vacation this week is because I chose this movie. So I don't know that he ever will. It was definitely in part because of that. <laughs> but no, we're just giving him a hard time. We know he'll hear this because he's our editor in chief, right? And we love him and he does a really good job editing. And I know it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. So hey, there you go. Chris, if this makes your day better whenever you happen to be editing this, I love you, buddy. Good job. Thank you for the hard work. Thank you for being hard at work. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) So his choice for next week, I put an envelope, so I couldn't see it until now. I'm opening it right now. Oh, my God, it's Die Hard. Is it really Die Hard? Speaking of being hard. Yeah, it is Die Hard. It's Die Hard. (laughs) I'm I'm not surprised. Uh, Okay, so can we give our listeners a rundown of where they can find Die Hard? So we are choosing the Director's Extended Edition. No, I'm just kidding. Good Lord. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, six and a half hours. (laughs) Are there any alternate versions of this movie? I don't Uh, actually know. know. I doubt it. Do like kind of just standard by the books action movies usually get? director's cuts or anything i i don't think so, so uh, but it HBO looks like it looks like it's on hulu which is probably through hbo on hulu yeah it is available to rent from voodoo and youtube for 399 as mm. well as google play music and amazon prime for 399 uh and if you have cinemax it can also be watched there or as we like to say in this household skinemax because that's the only thing i've ever used that for yeah, if you As want 4K, young, young lad, <laughs> it's um, Google Play, Apple, and Vudu, and YouTube. if I want 4 play, then go to Cinemax. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> if you want high quality, soft core porn of people moving couches and stubbing toes off camera, <laughs> go, go to Cinemax. 4K, 4 play. <laughs> I'm surprised the porn site has not put choose it. You know, we're gonna I'm gonna shop that around. Thanks. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see if we can make some money for this show. Find our first sponsor. I'm down for it. <laughs> That's a good time to mention the midweek matinee OnlyFans account. Yep, where you can see lewd pictures of the midweek manatee. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very nice thing to call me. <laughs> the midweek manatee is not quite ready to be unveiled completely, but just know. He's coming. Hmm. Ew. <laughs> Don't like that. <laughs> All right, Blake. Well, I guess, uh, are we ready to roll off? Yeah, I'm down if you are. Go for All it. All right. Well, cool. Uh, I'd like to first start off the wrap-up of this episode by thanking you two gentlemen for joining me. Uh, and, of thank course, you. really, I guess, us for joining Blake since he's our gracious host for this episode. Uh, thank you for being a host, Blake. Yeah, uh, Next week... 
you will see Chris back in the show and as your host watching Die Hard. So go check that out. Uh, and remember that you can find us on social media on Twitter at matinee underscore midweek, where you can participate in little posts we put up of screenshots that Blake pulls out from the movies that are really striking and beautiful. You can be part of little games that we play, uh, polls that we put out, all sorts of things that we like to do on there, and sometimes just good, funny content. Our most recent poll was in reference to our House of a Thousand Corpses episode, where we asked the question that we asked each other in the episode, who would you rather be killed by, Otis or Baby? Uh, so for some fun stuff like that, run over to our uh, social media. You can also find us on Facebook uh, as a the page Midweek Matinee, where you can see our post there. And lastly... If you would like to support the show with more than just your time, which we are ever so grateful for, then you can head over to patreon.com slash nartech. Uh, consider becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month to get your name listed off at the end of every episode that we do, uh, as well as able to get the episodes a week in advance from everyone else. So with that said, we're going to give a shout out to our patrons and we will see you guys next week. Thank you. Thanks to our patrons, Josh Jarrell, Matthew Green. My name is Dan. Luke Bartolomeo, Sean Santarude, Funk Turkey, Danny Villalobos, Corey Hickerson, Blake Popst, Kevin Bacon Bits, Shadowist, Steven Salazar, The Stonard, Travis Blow, Eduardo Palomino, Stefan Swanland, Constantly Kenny, Solitary Red, Chris Figs, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Brandon Edwards, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, and last but certainly not least, Mr. El Chabib. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.